turning in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Even though our focus this morning is on chapter 2, the first seven verses, I would like to pick it up at verse 9 of chapter 1. I've had an elder ask that we consider standing for our scripture reading, perhaps more than one, uh, an old custom showing respect for the word as we read the main scripture reading. So we're attempting that this morning. Let's pray briefly before reading. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that because this is your word and because you are the true and living God, that we will submit ourselves completely and utterly to the authority of the text and that you will help us as a church and help us as believers in Jesus Christ to understand its meaning, to see Jesus Christ, to embrace the Redeemer, and to believe and to repent. Work within our hearts according to the needs that you know are there, for you see all and you know all, and because you are our covenant God. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of sinners. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. This is the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." And here we pick up our text. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduringly patient and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, 
from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. What should matter to us is what Jesus thinks of the church. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It really doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what Jesus thinks of the church. It matters to Jesus whether we are doctrinally faithful, whether we love him, whether we love people, whether we are zealous for his glory, or are we just coasting along. So are you and I willing, as we look at the letters to the churches, to open our hearts both to be encouraged and also to be convicted, to believe and to repent? to apply what matters to Jesus to our hearts, because remember, we are the church. Are you willing to say as we go through these texts with the psalmist, Lord, search and try me? Will you pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me? Lord, if I'm keeping the church from being what the church should be, will you bring me to repentance? If I am hindering the church from being the holy church that we are called to be, then work repentance deep within my heart. So we have these seven letters to seven churches of Asia Minor. And what these churches face, the church will face until Jesus comes again. Until the return of Jesus Christ, the characteristics found in these churches will characterize churches of Jesus Christ. But they are given for our encouragement. They are given for our warning. They are given so that we might be the church that God wants us to be. And so that we might also find that we are daily believing and repenting and knowing him. Now as we look at these letters, there's a basic form with some variation. First, of course, there is an address to the angel of the church, right? And there are those who think the angels mean the angels that are somehow protecting or involved with the churches or with the pastors. There are others who think that because angel, angelos, can mean messenger, that these are letters to the pastors of the churches. I rather think that it's somewhat ambiguous because the affairs of heaven and earth are wrapped together. But nonetheless, these letters come to the churches, The identification of these people with Christ. These are the words of. There is knowledge. Christ says, I know. There are rebukes or commendations, promises or threats. The promise to him who overcomes. And then there is a call to response and application. He who has an ear, let him hear. But the bottom line is that it really matters how Christ evaluates his church. And as we look at these letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor, it is very important that we analyze, examine appropriately our own hearts and that we recognize this was not only God's word then and there, 
But this is God's word here and now for you and for me. Now, as we come to the church at Ephesus and we come to the text in chapter 2, 1 and following, the church of Ephesus, first of all, was very commendable, very commendable. They were discerning in doctrine especially. Notice how it's put here in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found themselves to be false. Ephesus was a church that was very sound in doctrine. Founded by Paul the Apostle, John was long associated with it, and perhaps he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos from his ministry in Ephesus. In Ephesus was the temple to Diana, or Artemis, famous, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Pliny the Elder said the temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 65 feet high, with 127 pillars of marble, 36 of which were covered with gold and jewels. It was a world of glitter. It was strong and impressive. It was attractive and economically prosperous. Ephesus was a center of learning, a center of trade, a center of immorality, and a center of occultism. It was the export center for Asia Minor, for the part of Asia Minor that was called the Roman province of Asia. And there were many other temples in Ephesus. And all in all, the church needed encouragement. Encouragement not to conform, because all of these things were so very attractive. Encouragement not to give in to the world, not to yield to emperor worship and all kinds of worldly pressure. And so the need for discernment for this church and for us is very great. Would you not agree? The church through the ages has been tempted to syncretism. The church in our age has virtually succumbed in many instances to syncretistic temptation. Recently, uh, I heard Ligon Duncan say, that anticipating what the Supreme Court has done in legalizing uh, sodomous relationships, he said, you watch what will happen. You watch how churches in our land are going to say, you know, we didn't understand the Bible on homosexuality correctly anyway. And they're going to adjust and they're going to make these changes. It's already happening. Well, let me tell you, I don't expect any differently from the world. I'm addressing the church. And the warning that comes to us from this church and many of the others found here is the warning not to succumb to syncretism. And we are to be faithful to discipline. This church was faithful in doctrine, but also faithful to discipline those who erred. Remember, it is Jesus' right as head and king of the church to evaluate the churches. To Smyrna, he gives praise. To Laodicea, censure. Others, it's mixed. Jesus not only has, but he holds the stars. He not only stands, but he walks among the churches. That's a very impressive statement. He walks. He is living and dynamic in his lordship. What would be different among us if we thought of Christ as walking among us as the church of Jesus Christ? And he says, I know In verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
Actually, that's covenantal language. It comes to us from Leviticus chapter 26 when God said, And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And when he says, I know, he's referencing his own ability to say to them, I know everything, I know all things, and I know your heart. The 139th Psalm, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. God knows this church. He knows every heart in it. He knows your thoughts and he knows mine. He knows your desires and he knows mine. He knows your aspirations and he knows mine. He knows when we foolishly try to hide from him because we cannot hide from him. He knows all things. The communion collect of the Book of Common Prayer says that Jesus is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. The one with piercing eyes like flaming fire knows the innermost heart. Well, this Christ commends the church for their discernment in exposing error and a willingness to discipline those who err. And so it specifically mentions the false apostles. Some things the church simply must not tolerate. And the modern church as a norm is very weak here. But Dennis Johnson has correctly said the church's intolerance was as politically incorrect in the midst of ancient pluralism as it would be today. Showing love and mercy and kindness and speaking of God's grace and of his righteousness to a fallen world was as politically incorrect then as it is now. And Christianity is inclusive in one sense because the gospel goes to sinners as sinners. It goes to every sinner. We preach the gospel to every creature. But Christianity is exclusive in another. For Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is Lord. You know, in the epistle of Ignatius, which was written late in the first century. The epistle of Ignatius shows that by the late 100s, these people, this church, was still resisting false teachers. I reread the epistle just this, or that portion of it just this week. And so they were very careful about doctrine. They were very careful about administering discipline. And they opposed the Nicolaitans. Notice again in verse 6. Yet this you have, After having criticized in a helpful way, the Lord Jesus gives them encouragement in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now Paul in Acts chapter 20 said to the elders from this place, this church, Ephesus, From among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And he warned Timothy also of strange doctrines that would arise in Ephesus. And here is one of those strange doctrines that has arisen in the church. In the letter to Pergamum, which is found in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Nicolaitans are compared to Balaam, who in Numbers chapter 25 and in 31 
recommended to King Balak of Moab to seduce Israel by luring them into immorality and idolatry. Illicit sex and idolatry are most often a package. Balaam is an antichrist in the Old Testament. So whoever these people are, obviously they are attempting to allure the church into idolatry and sexual immorality, and the church at Ephesus has a holy hatred of this pollution. And it is a commendable thing. The Lord Jesus commends them for their doctrine. He commends them for their discipline. He commends them for opposing the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Archbishop Trench says so beautifully, It is no slight praise to love that which Christ loves and to hate that which Christ hates. And is that your heart? Do you love those things that he loves and do you hate those things that he hates? Do you love those things that are in accord with his character and nature? And do you hate those things which are out of accord with his character and his nature? So the place of theology is commended by Jesus. Let me just put it plainly. Jesus is pleased when we pursue heart and soul, sound doctrine, and discipline in the church. I cannot stress enough our obligation. And one of the warnings that I think I would always like to bring from the pulpit to this congregation is to beware of having pastors in this church over time who minimize or detract from this calling. Because the church can be like the proverbial frog in the boiling water, turned up little by little by little, not even noticing the change in the temperature. And I warn you that it can happen to the church. It's happened through church history. It only takes one generation that is not zealous for the truth, and it can happen here, God forbid. And so the Lord Jesus commends them for all of these things and their good deeds and endurance. Notice how in verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who were themselves, called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. They toiled. The word kapos means to toil to the point of utter fatigue. They toiled for Christ. They labored for the gospel. They wanted to see the kingdom spread. And they endured in the midst of emperor worship, in the midst of Diana worship, and in the midst of a world that would call them away from Jesus Christ to all kinds of attractive but damnable things. So Christ says, I see your perseverance. And I would say, would you not, that to be a member of a church like this would be a privilege indeed. Yes? A privilege. They preached the word. They lifted the cross in the preaching, undoubtedly. They cared about truth. Had they had the Westminster Confession, they would have loved it. (laughs) They disciplined those who detracted from the truth and erred. It's a privilege indeed to be a part of such a congregation, faithful in Christian work and testimony, faithful in doctrine, faithful in discipline, but the best of churches are not faultless churches. And we should never lift our heads in pride, but only glory in Jesus. And this wonderful church has a serious, a very serious fault that is pointed out to this church by Jesus Christ himself. And so we read in verse 4, but I have this against you. So this is the second thing, a serious fault. I have this against you. 
that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. The love you had at first. Now, can we tell what this means? I will tell you that there was a time in which I thought, surely, a church that is so zealous for the truth, so zealous for discipline, that it must mean that that they're becoming somewhat insular and they're not loving people as they ought. They're not loving the world around them as they should, or they're not loving the lost as they should. But I've come to think that's not true. That it's really clear to me, as I read the text and meditate upon it, I really think that he's saying, your love for Jesus is cooled. What? They love doctrine. They love the the discipline of the church, they, they love the, the purity of the church, but their love for Jesus has cooled. Archbishop Trench in his classic says, the suggestion that this leaving of the first love can refer to the abating of any other love but that to God and Christ grows out of an, out of an entire ignorance of the whole spiritual life, the ways by which it travels and the dangers to which it is inevitably exposed and which, alas, only too often prove fatal to it. What is Archbishop Trench saying? He's saying what I think is really here in the text embedded in it. If you do not love people as you ought, if you do not love the lost as you ought, then the source of it always is that we do not love Jesus as we ought, isn't it? Can we really say, I love Jesus when it shows in my deeds to others that I do not? The way in which I love others simply shows whether or not I love Jesus. Now, it's so essential that you know that Jesus loves you, believer, even when you do not love him as you ought. But it's also important that I learn and grow in my love for Jesus, isn't it? Amen. So the first devotion of heart is cooling, probably as another generation has arisen in the church. Others, love for people and so forth, this shows that their love for God is not what it should be. These things are not separable. So that early enthusiasm for Christ is dissipating, cooling, perhaps in some hearts even gone. And I think really fundamentally, it is a decline in passion for Jesus who has redeemed us from our sins. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah speaks of Israel having forsaken the truth, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. He remembers how they once loved him as a people, but they do so no longer. So we may appropriately apply to ourselves this passage. William Ramsey, the great archaeologist, when he studied the church at Ephesus, said, A church, therefore, may be large and prosperous, zealous for truth and order and purity, laboring patiently and successfully for the name of Christ, and yet there may be unseen in, by human eyes and unsuspected even by herself, a secret defect that silently but surely threatens her very existence. No external zeal can compensate for declining love. Love is the very principle of life, and yet it is alarmingly true that its vigor may so decline even beneath the most flaming zeal and patient labors as to imperil life itself. 
Another writer says, the love of God in Christ is the deepest root of all our spiritual life. If a church leaves that love, the spiritual foundation of her life will dry up. So here's a church that loves doctrine, that loves discipline, that loves purity of life, and yet something is going on inside. What about me? What about you? May we search our hearts. Do I love God? Does it show in my love for others? Well, notice thirdly that the Lord Jesus himself rebukes and admonishes the church. And he does so in verse 5 when he says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now notice the Lord does not say, your problem is that you're just too focused on doctrine. Change that and everything will be well. He doesn't do that, not at all. How could the way, the truth, and the life say such a thing? How could the Holy Spirit who inspired the text filled with teaching say such a thing for people to think this is very close to blasphemy? Do not forget that the church is commended for its focus on truth, commended for its focus on discipline. These are good things, right things. But let us be clear, it is sinful for the church to fail to stress doctrine and discipline. This is not this church's problem. The Lord calling upon the church to remember and to repent points to a love that is cooling. So remember, remember, he says, look back, think back, remember. And maybe they did not notice that their worship was perfunctory. Their labor was powerless. That there was no ardor in the preaching or the hearing of the word or in their singing. Or maybe leaders were going through the motions. Maybe prayer was powerless. Maybe they were more concerned with programs and budgets, but they forgot for whom those things existed. Perhaps they did not notice that their spiritual pulse beat was low, that there was little life or vitality. Think back. Remember when you were alive for Christ. Remember when your heart was zealous for Christ, when you burned for Christ. Do you remember the time when you walked fervently in Christ's love? Remember when you really loved God? Do you remember when it showed in all kinds of ways, large and small, in the way in which you loved your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, in the way in which you loved your co-worker, in the way in which you were tender with your children, in the way in which you served your fellow church member? Do you remember when your love for me captivated your soul, when I was altogether lovely in your eyes, when you looked upon Jesus and there you saw only what is lovely and pure and good and it captured your heart. And so he says, repent and do the deeds that you did at first because love is shown in deeds. Love brings with it fervor, doesn't it? How, how many of you when, you, when you courted your wife, you showed all kinds of, of stupid ways to love her. <laughs> All sorts of silly things. All sort. You loved, didn't you? And then you married. And she's still wondering, where did it go? <laughs> In some instances. What happened? 
You can't even make a cup of tea for her in the morning, much less come up with some of the harebrained ideas that you had years ago. Do you love the Lord? So he says, repent immediately. And repentance is a hard thing. Are you willing to say to the Lord, show me my sin? Show me those things in my life that shouldn't be there. What is in my life or in your life that just simply needs to go? It doesn't belong. It's hindering your communion with God, your relationship with Jesus. And so repentance conflicts with your carnality and mine. So ask yourself, if the whole congregation, listen to this question, if the whole congregation were like me, what would this congregation be like? If the whole congregation of our church were like my heart, if the whole heart of the congregation were like the heart that I have, what would it look like? And if I simply ask the question, I immediately am led to repentance, which is a good thing. Now, you know, there are examples of this from history. Having mentioned Trench, he mentions uh, Bishop Burnett in 1680 who went to the continent. So this is sometime after the Reformation. And he goes to the Reformed churches, and there he finds ministers who are theologically articulate, who speak the truth, but he finds a ministry and a people that are cold and lifeless. Very, very soon after the Reformation, the early enthusiasm was gone. So one generation may be filled, filled with zeal, another continues the form without power, and the next generation or two becomes apostate. And they forget the cross, and they no longer boast exclusively in the cross, and their love grows cold. They no longer know what it means to have morning and evening confession of sin, to come to Jesus and his blood as a morning and evening sacrifice. They no longer know what it means, evidently, to, to come before him and to be washed every morning and washed clean every night in the blood of Jesus. You know, J.C. Ryle had a wonderful way of putting this that might be quite striking. He says you're to use the blood of Jesus. Now that might take you aback, but that is precisely it. He has shed his blood for your use. That believers might come in morning and evening and through the day know the cleansing of our sins. And how serious is this matter? Well, it's deadly. It's lethal. Look at verse 5 again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's deadly. Now, the church of Jesus Christ in this world cannot fail. The old theologian spoke of the indefectibility of the church. The church will always be here until Jesus returns. But churches... Local expressions of the church can fail. So the warning here is for the church of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, and for the church in the West. Has not the candlestick all but been removed and much of the West only to burn brightly in other parts of the world? In Brazil, in South America, in China? Trench's comments... I think soberly prove the point. Listen to this. He says, The removing of the candlestick from a place implies the entire withdrawal of Christ's grace of, the, of his church with all its blessings from that spot, with the transfer of it to another. 
For it is the removal of the candlestick, not the extinction of the candle, which is threatened here. Judgment for some, but that very judgment, the occasion of mercy for others. And so it has proved. The churches of Asia Minor are now no more, or barely or hardly exist. But the grace of God withdrawn from them has been bestowed elsewhere. The seat of the church has been changed, but the church itself still survives. The candlestick has been removed, but the candle has not been quenched. And what the east has lost, the west has gained. How awful for Ephesus the fulfillment of the threat has been for every modern traveler who has visited the ruins of that once famous city has borne witness. One who did not long ago found only three churches there, and these sunken in such ignorance and apathy as scarcely to have heard the names of St. Paul and St. John. So he says, I was there. I saw. There's nothing there any longer. There are no churches there. The gospel is not preached there. But he can say, he can say look at the West. Look at Europe. Look at England. Now that was written in 1897. What's England like now? What's Europe like now? Where are the churches now? By and large, they're empty. And a cold Unitarianism is in the churches or an atheism prevails in their culture. The candlestick has been removed. It's a deadly thing. And it all comes down to this. We just don't take time to know God. We just don't take time to commune with Him. We just don't take the time that is needed to keep our hearts warm and aglow in the love that he has shown us in the gospel. We just don't take time to ask him daily to show me my sin that I may believe and repent that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, might cleanse me from all sin. And so we coast along and then a generation or two comes that is cold and the candlestick is removed. Am I contributing to this, or am I contributing to the opposite in this congregation? Are you contributing to this, or are you contributing to the opposite in this congregation, or whatever congregation of which some of you here are part? So, fourthly, there's a call to hear, and we see it here in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear. What Christ speaks, the Spirit speaks, which means that I must ask myself, do I hear? Don't look at my neighbor. Don't look at your neighbor. I have an ear, spiritually speaking. Am I hearing what is preached by this text? Am I willingly deaf? Philip Hughes said, responsible hearing is imperative because it is God the Holy Spirit who is speaking. So God the Holy Spirit is speaking through this text. And there's a call to each of us to hear. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, If I have prophetic powers and understand all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. But then the Lord Jesus concludes with an encouraging promise in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. The one grace that Satan cannot counterfeit is the grace of perseverance. Every other Christian grace he can counterfeit, but he cannot counterfeit perseverance. 
So the image is that of a conqueror who continues to the end, true Christians overcome the world. And he brings an allusion to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And he says to us, essentially, what was lost in paradise is restored and more in Christ. The victors will eat of the tree of life in paradise. We read in chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 7. Paradise was lost, but in the new Jerusalem there will be the tree of life bearing a new crop each month, healing the nations with its leaves, Revelation 22, 1 through 2. And so when he speaks here of the tree of life in verse 7, it is a symbol of fellowship. Adam was driven out of paradise. Christ restored us to paradise, and we are called to constantly taste of that covenant fellowship by faith to eat of the tree. And if I did not want by grace that fellowship now, then I certainly would not want it after death. You know, it has been pointed out that the temple of Diana at Ephesus was built on the site of an ancient tree shrine. And the image of the date palm symbolized the goddess and her city, Ephesus. But Jesus is pointing to a greater tree, a tree of life for his people. Access to that tree that yields eternal fruit. And he holds it out and he says, you persevere toward the goal of access to that tree. Ultimately, that tree is purchased for you in my shed blood. Addressing God's professing people in this text means that you and I might have to go home and we might have to get in our closets and we may have to get on our knees and we may have to say, all right, Lord, what is there in my heart or life that really does contribute to all that the church should be of which I am a member? What is there in my heart and life that does not contribute but rather takes away from all that the church is called to be and do in the place where you have put me? Lord, I want to love you. I want to grow in my love for you. And I want to love your people. I'm willing to repent. I'm willing to go ask that person for forgiveness. I'm willing to do that hard thing that, that my heart has been saying I should do for your church, and I'm just not doing it. I'm willing to put Jesus first. I'm willing to repent and change. Now, I'm addressing Christians, but I'm also aware that there may be those here today who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to ask, do you have the assurance of paradise because if you do not, there is only one who can give that assurance, and that one is Jesus Christ. So let me bring this to a quick conclusion. I really mean it, quick. Just two things. Two things that I hope will stick. Apply to yourselves, and I need to apply to myself this. I simply need to say to myself, the church will be what I am. The church will be, stop looking at other people. Take your eyes off others. Take your eyes off others. The church will be what I am. And then I would say to this church and to all of us who are members here, you know, we're incredibly blessed people in this church. 
We really are. And the Word of God says, to whom much is given, much is required. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.